Father, we thank you that we have a God who's alive. That you live. And it's through your death that we found life. I thank you that we can visit the tombs of all the religious leaders of, of the world. Every one of them is filled. Minus one. And that's your tomb. Because you live. Because you were resurrected from the dead. I pray today, Lord, as we look at what you've done for us. You came intentionally. Your life was not taken from you. You laid it down. You took the, the steps to come down the hill on the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem for one purpose, and that's to redeem humankind. And I pray, Lord, today that as we look at who your purpose is, what your purpose is for all of us, that, God, that you would speak to us today through your word, that you would transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Jesus is easily the most controversial person ever to have lived. He is also the most well-known of all historical figures. After Jesus made a dramatic entrance into the human race, he lived in relative obscurity for about 30 years until he appeared on the stage of this monotheistic religious nation, Israel, a people group that was dominated and occupied by a nation of pagan religious beliefs, the Romans. Then at about age 30, Jesus began his public ministry. Near the end of his third year of public ministry, Jesus began his final journey into Jerusalem, a journey that would end in his violent death at the hand of these Romans. When we joined the story, we found that Jesus recently raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. And it was an event that was witnessed and documented by many people. While many people believed in him and chose to follow him at this point, the religious leaders of that day were afraid that if the news of this resurrection, this miracle, was to spread, it might cause an uprising among the Jewish people. The timing could not be worse because the Jewish religious establishment had, had a Passover celebration where people from all over the world were in Jerusalem celebrating. See, Jesus had caused enough problems for these religious leaders at this point. And it was this day and this point that Jesus made a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. As he came down the hill on the Mount of Olives into the city, people were waving palm branches. They were placing their garments on the road in honor of him and shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. All four gospels in the New Testament record this event, which we are celebrating today as Palm Sunday. But who was this Jesus, really? And why was he entering Jerusalem for certain death and rejection? To answer this and other questions, I want to look at a passage in Luke that gives us some answers and some insight as to why Jesus came into Jerusalem heading for the cross. And as we look at the person and mission of this man, Jesus, what does it mean to believe in and follow after him? as believers today. Today, follow, and I'd like you to turn with me to Luke 9. Luke, the ninth chapter, 
You'll find it on page 841 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. It's Luke 9, starting with verse 18. Luke 9, verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples who were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? So they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me, in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Who is this Jesus? And why is he going to Jerusalem to face certain death? Let's be, begin by asking the question of the who. Who Jesus is. Jesus begins his conversation with his disciples with a question, talking about his identity. He said, who do the crowds say that I am? He said, who, who do they think I am? Now, if we asked a question today, if you went out into the mall or you went out downtown or you went into the marketplace somewhere, and you ask people, who is Jesus, you would get a lot of different responses. You would have some people say he was a great leader or he was the founder of Christianity. He was a great teacher, one of many potential gods. Some people would say he was an imposter. Somebody might say, well, he was a nice guy who loved everyone. There were a lot of things that you'd hear people of their opinions. And, and Jesus said, who were the people of that day saying about me? What are they saying about me? And, and the answer seemed a little weird to us because it's in a different day. They said, first of all, John the Baptist, who had been beheaded and they thought maybe came back to life. Some said Elijah, and Elijah was that guy that went off in the chariot of fire and never did die. Okay? And then you have the prophet who came back to life. So they had all these ideas, the different things people were saying about who this Jesus was. But then he asked them, who do you say that I am? It's a critical question. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered for all of them. He said, the Christ of God. Or the Messiah. He said he's the Messiah. But Jesus did not fulfill their expectation of the Christ or the Messiah. The question is, what were they expecting of Messiah? That was a question they had. N.T. Wright in The Challenge of Jesus writes, few if any of the first century Jews imagined for a moment that the Messiah would in any way be divine. In other words, the people did not expect the Messiah to perform miracles or do supernatural things. They expected two things of the Messiah. Okay, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to do two things. Number one, he would build or restore the temple, which was the center of worship and life of the Israeli people. Second, he would fight the decisive battle against the enemy, which in this case was the Romans. 
And if you talk to Orthodox Jews today, they would say the purpose of the Messiah coming is twofold, is to rebuild and restore the temple in Jerusalem, and he will fight and deliver Israel from her enemies. Now, there were several Messiah-type people in Israel's history, according to N.T. Wright. King David, Judas Maccabees, Herod, all of them. But none of these deliverers that were Messiahs lasted very long. They came and they went. No one to date had filled the expectations and definition of the Messiah. And none of them actually claimed to be the Messiah. And then there comes Jesus. Here comes Jesus. Jesus did not rebuild the temple. Not only did he not defeat the Romans, he died at the hands of the Romans like many other of the failed revolutionary leaders of the Jews. So what? what's the point? The point is that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He took authority over the temple and cast the money changers out. When he went on trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, he is asked directly, are you the Messiah from God? In his answer, he quotes from two passages in the Old Testament. He says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And with his answer, Caiaphas tore his robes and claimed that Jesus blasphemed by claiming to be God. And then they sentenced him to death for blasphemy, claiming to be God. It's, it's critical for us to understand today that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. The Christ, the Son of God. He claimed to be God, period. None of this nice teacher stuff. I mean, he claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Messiah. And not only that, but he claimed to be the only way to God. God the Father. He said in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus claims to be the Messiah, tells his disciples it's true. And then what does he do? He contradicts everything that they believe the Messiah should be. Here's the odd thing. And then he gives a prediction in verse 22. We just read it. He said, this is what being the Messiah means. It means suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. So wait a minute, wait a minute now. Didn't the prophets in the Old Testament foretell that the Messiah was going to restore and rebuild the temple? And he was going to defeat Israel's enemy for good? Yes. Here is the mystery of the Messiah. This is the thing that the Jews could not wrap their mind around. God's way through Jesus is a way so different that his followers could not comprehend it. Suffering, rejection, and death. How can you win anything but suffering, rejection, and death? How can anything be accomplished on that path? That is why after his triumphal entry, where Jesus was elevated as a hero on one day, Savior and Messiah, five, five short days later, he went from hero to goat. Five, five short days later, the crowds turned on him and killed him. Well, Jesus came to die, to be resurrected, to restore the temple, the dwelling place of God. How did that happen? He died paid for the sins of human beings, was resurrected, and went to heaven. When he was glorified in heaven, what happened on the day of Pentecost? He sent the Holy Spirit of God to dwell in the temple of God, which is human beings. He established the temple. Not if it, now, in the, in the future, someday he's going to establish that temple in Jerusalem 
We don't know exactly when that's going to happen. We all disagree when that. But when he died and was resurrected and glorified, then he established his residency, a permanent presence in the temple, which is human beings. He came to dwell in you and me. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's what happened in establishing his rule and reign. He took up residence in our lives. And by his death and resurrection, what about this enemy that he was supposed to defeat? He defeated his ultimate enemy, our, sen- our enemy Satan, and sin and the power of sin. So, so he basically set up the temple, defeated our enemy, and he set up what was called the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, which transcends every earthly kingdom and has lasted on earth for over 2,000 years and will last forever. This was so counter to the thinking of the disciples and all the Jewish thinking. But all 12 disciples, minus one, died martyrs' deaths, not only claiming that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, but claiming that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the Messiah, the Christ. Now, he predicted his suffering, his rejection, his death, and his resurrection. It's pretty challenging to predict your death. It's even more challenging to predict your resurrection. But Jesus did those things. Remember what the religious leaders said after Jesus' death? They went to Pilate and they said, Sir, and I think, I haven't seen the movie yet risen, but I think that this is based on this, this part of the story. They went to Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, the deceiver, Jesus said, after three days I will rise again, so give an order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. And of course, his body was still gone. Now, we could look at many other convincing proofs that Jesus claimed to be and indeed was the Messiah. We don't have time this morning, but suffice it to say that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah and his followers believed he was Messiah and they died the death of martyrs for that fact. Who Jesus is, if that is who Jesus is, then what does it mean to follow Jesus? If Jesus was the Messiah, what does it mean to follow? Let's look at Roman numeral two in Jesus' own word, Words, what it means to follow Jesus. In verse 23, it says, If anyone would come after me or follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus calls for three actions. If we're to follow him and follow after him and be a, a, a disciple of Jesus, first of all, letter A, it's deny self. To deny self. Now, we live in a day and age where people do not like the denial of anything except perhaps denial of guilt or deny reality or deny responsibility. We don't like to deny anything, especially self. And whether it's a a commercial for the latest personal tech gadget, the best luxury car, the newest pharmaceutical answer to diabetes, high cholesterol, or acid reflux, whether it's this buds for you, sure it's expensive, but you're worth it, you can have it all. All these messages come to us and say, we're not asking you to deny anything. We're asking you to gratify everything. Everything's about you. There's a contrast between what we know as 21st century Americans and what Jesus called on us to do. He said, deny yourself. We, we tend to think in America that it's all about us and we're the center of the universe, not only America, but the church. The church exists for me. Isn't it about me? No, it's not about you. It's about people who are not yet here, people who need to know. It's about Jesus glorifying God and about drawing people into faith in Jesus Christ. 
to follow Jesus. Now, there's a contrast of gratify or deny. Number one is gratify or deny. We're a culture obsessed with fulfillment. People enter marriage to fulfill their needs. But no relationship can work when one or both people in a relationship are taking and not giving. The key to a successful marriage relationship is to deny, not gratify. Selflessness, not selfishness. It's what we can give, not what we can get. And that attitude epitomized the life of Jesus Christ. So deny, not gratify. Then there's the immediate or delay. We want everything immediate. Immediate. We want everything and we want it now. We get frustrated if it takes longer than two seconds to connect to a website. Is that true? I mean, when we first got on the web, it was this, it'd take about 15 seconds to connect, depending on which phone service you had. Now it's like two seconds. If I'm not on that website, I am really ticked. My computer needs work. Something happens. You call the provider and say, something's wrong with my connection. Or it takes forever to receive an email confirmation of an order on Amazon. Or to download a file from the internet. You know, you know what? The signal's going to outer space and back. Just, just lighten up, okay? It's going all the way out there and back. And so two seconds, it, it'll do that. We bank online. We transfer funds, pay bills, check our balance all instantly. And we never have to move. We can have instant gratification. We watch TV. We just click the channel. We can channel surf, etc. And we have this thing called a remote, which is always exactly where it should be, which is in my hands. <laughs> Immediate. Or delay? It's a question. To follow after Jesus means delay. A delay in the fulfilling of my desires because his desires come first. It's first. Putting off my desire in order to serve someone else. Then there's the temporary or eternal. Many are obsessed with this physical existence with little or no no thought given to the next life. And I know that as we get older, we start thinking that someday maybe this life will end, but we don't like to think about that. Everything's for the now. We want everything for the, the temporary physical instead of the eternal in the future. In 2002, there was a new method to delay the look of aging, and it became widely available because we, we don't want to give in to aging. It was called Botox, called Botox. The commercial name for, for botulinum toxin A, a purified form of poison that causes botulism. And the drug is injected into the patient's facial muscles and paralyzes the muscles that cause wrinkles. This eradicates existing wrinkles and prevents future wrinkling for a while. It's temporary. It's temporary, okay? In fact, one... One doctor said, if you don't do it very often, your flawless face will eventually look like a Sharpay in about four months. That's a, that's a type of dog. I don't know if you know what a Sharpay is. Okay. I, I wanted to get a picture and actually put it up there, but I couldn't find a picture of a Sharpay. So anyway, constant treatments have led to whole social circuits where, cir- circles where it's rare to find a woman over 35 with the ability to look angry. In fact, Botox is so popular in Hollywood that many film directors are complaining about actors whose faces can't move properly. (laughs) I know, you see them too. They come out, yeah, it's interesting. Very interesting. For some, it's it's just an obsession. We are focused on the, you know, and, and whether it's pharmaceutical drugs to keep us younger or whatever it is, we try to keep young because we're looking at the temporary, not the eternal. It's just the focus of our life. For some, it's an obsession with money. The story is told of a man who is a miser. 
And he attended church, but he refused to give anything in the offering. He just did not want to give anything in the offering. Once in a moment of weakness, he put $3.50 in the offering. That was it. Well, the man eventually died and went to heaven. Since going to heaven is not dependent on how much money we give, he made it in. Peter was given the job of showing him to his place of residence. So they walked past all the mansions and the estates and the English tutors and the nice Cape Cods and past some of the designer homes. And further and further, they went out further and further. They passed some very tiny houses. Finally, they reached the outer limits and found a lean-to made with two pieces of plywood. Peter looked at his iPad and said, this is it. The man was incensed and began to raise a real ruckus. He was complaining loudly, making a big scene when Jesus walked up. What's the problem, Jesus asked. Peter said, well, you know, he only sent up $3.50. You don't get a lot for $3.50 these days. And Jesus said, well, give him his $3.50 back and tell him where to go. <laughs> That's not true to my knowledge, okay? Not true. But it's an illustration of how we are obsessed with this life instead of the next life. What does it mean to come after Jesus or follow Jesus, deny self? Secondly, the next phrase that we all love to hear is take up our cross daily. Now what does that mean? We tend to think of our cross as undesirable circumstances or circumstances beyond our control. A woman marries a difficult man and he is her cross to bear. I have an illness, that's my cross to bear. Well, the cross is not your mother-in-law, your boss, or your teenager, okay? That's not your cross. The cross here should not be confused with common human circumstances, which we don't choose, and they're just part of life. Our cross is not like Jesus' cross, which was physical. He died on the cross. Our cross is chosen by us, and something we choose because we are following Jesus Christ. And it involves a denial of self. It's sacrifice and selflessness. Whether it's choosing a hard place, a difficult relationship, a thankless job, doing something that requires sacrifice because we love and will deny self. To follow Jesus is to do what Jesus did. Now, there are four facts about taking up a cross. Number one, it's a one-way trip. There's no turning back. When a man took up his cross and went with the Roman soldiers, believe me, he's not coming back. He's not coming back. It's one way. It's also certain death. In our case, it's dying to self and selfishness. It moves beyond just denial of self to actually death to self. This is a hard, hard thing to understand. My desires no longer matter. There's a, there's a passage of Scripture, Galatians 2.20, that talks about this. And this is very instructive. It says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is dying to self, putting our own interests and wishes to death and surrendering it to Jesus, existing for his wishes and his desires, not for mine. It's for Jesus. It's also, number three, total submission. Total submission to Jesus, to his leadership, his commands, his values, his priorities, his person. That relationship, our relationship with Jesus now is more important than any other relationship we have. 
any other thing in life. So it's a one-way trip. It's certain death. It's total submission. And it's ongoing. It says, take up the cross daily. It's continuous. See, there's something about human nature that we kind of forget. We forget things. And we need to take up our cross intentionally on a daily basis to follow Jesus. Deny self, take up our cross daily, and let her see, imitate Jesus. Follow means to come behind, do what Jesus did. Now, this isn't like the WWJD, we all got the bracelets, what would Jesus do? And we had that phrase, and, and there's nothing wrong with, with the bracelet, what would Jesus do? It's a nice reminder, but it, we can't do it in a wooden sense. I, I, had, I had friends that took it to extremes. They, they'd say, would Jesus play basketball or soccer? Or, I wonder what Jesus would have for breakfast. You know, or would he wear a green or a white t-shirt today? I mean, they, they said, you know, it's just like this, what would Jesus do? That's not what we're doing. This has to do with the character of God. The character of God, not getting hung up on details. In the Old Testament, we read about the Holy Spirit coming on people at certain times for certain events. And the Holy Spirit would come on for, usually for a certain amount of time, and he would give them this life and energy and something that they did, an empowerment in the Old Testament. And then there were these prophecies that in the new day, the Holy Spirit would come on all flesh. You look at the book of Joel. One of the passages is in the book of Isaiah that says the Holy Spirit would write the law on your hearts. In other words, the Holy Spirit will bring internal change. And because that Holy Spirit changes us internally, then we actually become like Jesus. Now, there's a, this is part of a learning curve for a lot of us. Um, the psychologist Abraham Maslow proposed four levels of learning, okay? Four levels of learning. The first one is unconscious incompetence, okay? Unconscious. Um, you're ignorant and you don't know it. It's a nice blissful existence, okay? Then there's conscious incompetence. I know that I don't know. And then there's conscious competence. I've learned how, but I have to be consciously aware as I do it. And then there's unconscious competence. I'm so competent at doing it, I don't have to think about it anymore. Okay? Now, there's a point to this. Let me, let me ask you, how many of you learned how to drive on a stick shift car? Wow, wow. Okay, how many of you still drive a stick shift today? Okay, <laughs> okay a few of you. Yeah, those diehards, it's got to be right. When, I, when you first start learning how to drive a stick shift, you, you don't know how, and somebody tells you. So you're basically consciously incompetent to drive a stick shift. Then the conscious is competent means you learn how. And so you've got to coordinate between the clutch and the foot feed. You push the foot feed down and you push the clutch in, move, the, move it, and you, you, know, you shift, go through the shifts and you have to coordinate. And if you don't get it right, then you, you can't find it, you grind it, you know, it's all this stuff. And we used to laugh at people learning how to drive. Ah, look at that, you know, they don't know how to drive. Whatever, and so, so all of this is a, is a process. Now, when you're learning how to do that, you cannot drink a latte and have your McDonald's lunch at the same time, okay? You're really concentrating because you're not quite competent. You're consciously competent. Now, when you get the trick down and pretty soon you're doing this smoothly, you jump in the car, start the car, and you don't think about it. You go through all the gears, you downshift, you upshift, whatever you have to do. You have unconscious competence. You're so competent you don't have to think about it anymore. Now, here's the point you've been waiting. What in the world is he talking this about? 
Many of us in our Christian life, it was like, I remember in my life, I get up in the morning, okay, I gotta be like Jesus, okay. I gotta do this, I gotta do this, I can't do that. You know, and so I'm, I'm having this thing and I'm walking through consciously trying to navigate being like Jesus. And one day I was so frustrated because I was trying to concentrate and I was distracted and I said, I can't concentrate like this. I said, you just be Jesus through me. You know what? It worked. It, it was almost like, you know, I just, you surrender and say, Jesus, it's like this, this unconscious competence. It becomes part of the fabric of who you are. That's what Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to do in us is to live his life through us so that we're not sitting there wondering about the mechanics of doing this. He just lives it. Our nature changes. Our heart changes. It says he writes his law on our heart. It becomes part of who we are. And we become like Jesus by virtue of surrender to the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus begins to live his life. And over time, the character of Jesus becomes your character. And you naturally or supernaturally imitate Jesus. It's the only way to go. It's too hard otherwise. We just have to say, God, take me, use me, fill me with your Holy Spirit, change me as I go. And it's a constant battle of who's in charge and how much we're going to let God be in charge. And don't, don't let anybody fool you. There's not a single time of arriving until you die because it's always a battle. But the more we surrender, the, the less we fight, the more we're empowered to live that holy life and be like Jesus. It's transformational. It's not how much of the Holy Spirit do we have, it's how much of you does the Holy Spirit have. Letting him live that through you. There's an interesting passage in Philippians 2. I want to read a couple of passages from Philippians about Jesus and the character. Philippians 2 Verse 5 says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, what does it cost to follow Jesus? Number three, what it costs to follow Jesus? Verse 25 and 26 says, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world that lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. What does it cost? It doesn't cost much. Just everything. Just everything. People say, what does it cost to be a follower of Jesus? Everything. Everything. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? The costs are total surrender if we want to follow Jesus. But the rewards, the rewards. The next chapter in Philippians 3 says this. Paul had spent a lifetime. He's actually in jail here. And he says this, but verse 7, Philippians 3, 7, but whatever 
was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Consider, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that, that comes from God is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection the fellowship of his sufferings in his fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And then verse 14, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. The rewards follow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who's called us to follow Jesus. And Jesus, you took that path down that road, the Mount of Olives, knowing you were going to be suffering, you're going to be rejected, you're going to be abused, you're going to die. So that you could bring life, you could be resurrected. And then you sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us. And now we are empowered. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. And I pray, God, that we would realize in a new way that the only way for the Messiah to accomplish his goal of, of, of setting up the temple, of, of defeating the enemy for good, was for Jesus to die and be resurrected and glorified. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that we are the recipients of that power and that life change. And I pray, God, as we follow you, Jesus, we would take your mission to those that don't know yet. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I trust you'll go out today just with a renewed sense of purpose in following Jesus. I want to again extend that invitation for Friday night as we spend time as a family in communion. And Easter Sunday, great celebration. Uh, lots of special music, a lot of life. So please come ready and uh, we'll go forward. And now may the love of God the Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the power and fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with all who are in Jesus Christ. Amen. See you Friday.